this is our last morning in this series. And uh, so if you've been following the conversation, you know the bumper video is kind of meant to just have some fun and be a little bit lighthearted before we jump into a discussion about you know, politics. And, and honestly, the discussion is way deeper than politics is about loving one another, as Jesus called us to love one another, which is as he loved us, right? And so that's been the conversation. And I, I just, I, I was kicking myself. This is so funny. I didn't plan this this way. But we, <laughs> I started our Wednesday night discussion group based on the weekly messages the same time I started this series. So we've been going at it all week long talking about politics, which honestly, I talked about this a little bit last week. This is not my bent. I, I, I'm, I am trying to be on top of the news and what's happening in the political world, and that's important to me. But you know, it's, it's, not, it's not my uh, first conversation that I would have. I haven't ever gotten away from the topic of religion in church, but it's easy to kind of stay away from politics if you want to, right? And but we just felt Holy Spirit leading us into this. And so it's been so good. The conversations surrounding this series have been so good. And the feedback has been so great. Of course, you know, there's been a little confusion here and there too. Some of you that have watched the bumper, there was one person that came up to us after watching the, the introduction video that has Deanna and I. If you haven't seen it before, you'll have to watch it. It's pretty hilarious. But somebody came up to us and asked us, does that mean that you and Deanna have different political views? <laughs> no, that wasn't the idea of the video. Um, although, that said, I did have one or two people come up to me since we started this series and thank us for the series and the ensuing conversation that's happened because they said, my own house, the people in my house that I live with, we're politically divided. And so I think that happens more so than we realize. But my altogether favorite comment um, was after the first week and after, after I, we were, I was walking through the sanctuary going to pick up my kids on a Wednesday night and someone came up to me and said, I was so excited for this series. I thought, I thought you were gonna defend my political party. Uh, but instead, I just felt Holy Spirit leaning me into how I respect others from other political parties. And I'd love, love, love to hear that. And so another favorite thing, I've heard stories of you actually going out and doing this, having meaningful, loving conversations with people who sometimes are very obviously you know, not holding the same political views. And, and you were prompted by Holy Spirit to bring up some things that we've been talking about, and that's just beautiful. And that's what I believe will speak to the world louder than almost anything. Jesus prayed this for us. And the scriptures say, what do they say? They, they, they speaking of non-believers, will know us by our what? Love. And, and so I just wanted to start off on the last day of this series, and some of you are saying, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, that this is almost over. But I, I just wanted to say, thank you for being willing to lean into this conversation. I know this isn't always an easy conversation. And so I, I don't know how you felt going to bed after Tuesday night's debate, if you chose to watch or, or, or watch all the way through. I know some of you turned it off about you couldn't finish it, you couldn't stomach it. But for others of us, you know, our jaws were dropped and we just couldn't look away, right? And, and um, I'll tell you how I felt. I felt sick. I felt sick, you know, if, if we were looking for leaders to model loving one another, uh, that was a sad display. And, and so, you know, what I'd like to do before we do anything else this morning, I'd just like us to pray, amen? Father God, help us to love one another as you have loved us. God, we just thank you and we pray for our country. We love our country. We're proud to be Americans. We, we just, we want what you want for us more than anything. You know what? We are kingdom people first. 
And so you came and you came as a, you said this is a new kingdom that's coming. And this, uh, I'm, I'm the son of the king. And I have a new commandment, which is to love one another as I have loved you. So Father God, as we have this last conversation today, we just give it to you. God, we open our spiritual ears so that we can hear from you and our spiritual eyes so we can see the way you see things. Your mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Okay, quick question for you. Are you familiar with the term fundamental attribution error? Anybody? You can raise your hand if anybody in the room. Okay, yeah, all right, we've got somebody. So if you've heard of that before, the fundamental attribution error Virtually nobody in the room, but every once in a while, I just like to you know, throw out some obscure thing to help me look smart. So <laughs> anyway, the, the fundamental attribution error is actually what it is. It's a cognitive bias that we all get sucked into, especially during a time such as this, a political season. And it goes like this, a cognitive bias. It causes us to attribute people's behavior to their character. And so it's, the, it's, it's a blanket statement like this. You know, the reason he acts this way is because that's who he really is. And that's, that's, that's just what he believes, so that's what he is. And the reason she believes that way, and the reason uh, she works that way, because the, she functions that way, is because that's an indication of who she really is on the inside. But we don't do that many times when it comes down to our own behavior. When it comes down to us, we attribute our behavior to our circumstances and environmental factors. So let me give you an illustration. So let's think about, let's think about that guy at work that's always late. You know, that guy, he is, he's late again, and you know immediately, you know why he's late. He's late because he's lazy, He's irresponsible and he's just disorganized. That's why he is always late, right? But then when you're late, you've never once looked in the mirror and said, you know what the problem is? I'm lazy and I'm irresponsible and I'm just disorganized. No, what happens many times, what happens, it's just the opposite for you. You decide the reason I'm late is because while I was helping the kids get ready for school or the reason I'm late is because I was on the phone with a friend and it was an important phone call. I needed to make that. I'm I'm actually very organized and very responsible. In fact, I'm so organized and responsible, I was late, (laughs) right? That's how it works. Fundamental attribution bias happens when we assume that a person's actions reflect what kind of person they really are, what kind of person she is, rather than social and environmental factors. We spent a lot of time talking about this last week. And so, when it comes to the political scene, This is what it sounds like. You've heard these statements. I'm just repeating some of the things you've already heard, all right? Those corrupt Democrats, they're just corrupt. You know why they act that way? They're corrupt. It's their character. They're all corrupt. Or the heartless Republicans, you know why they vote that way. You know why they believe that way because I've met all of them. I've done research. I know every single Republican and they are heartless. No, you're corrupt. No, you're heartless. No, you're corrupt. No, you're heartless, right? You know what I'm saying? And, and we've been sucked into this cognitive bias. You've heard people say stuff well, like, clearly there's something wrong with these people. Something's wrong deep down on the inside. The Democrats are all socialists. I mean, we know that they are. Well, you know, the Republicans, they're all racist. They just won't admit it. They're not going to admit it. But we know they're racist. We see their hearts, every single one of them. And we get all upset and we bang our fists on the table. Now, I, I hate to burst your bubble and maybe you're gonna hate me for this, so hate me now. But, but then over lunch, I want you to think about this. Mature, emotionally intelligent, curious, empathetic people, they don't fall for that stuff. They don't. 
but political rhetoric feeds it and political rhetoric grabs us by the nose and it just leads us into saying all kinds of silly things that hurt each other and believe in all kinds of silly things that just aren't true. And you're better than that and I'm better than that, so let's not do that, okay? In fact, you can call people out when they start doing this and you can just say, I'm sorry, but it appears you're suffering from a cognitive bias, right? And they're just look at you and say, what? They say, yeah, you're suffering from a cognitive bias. Um, I'm emotionally intelligent and I'm empathetic and so I don't suffer from that. I used to, but then I heard this fabulous sermon that helped me understand what was going on, right? So here's the thing. We, 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 we talked about Galatians 6.2 last week. When we choose to carry someone's burden, in Galatians 6.2, a verse that we looked at last week, when we choose to carry someone's burdens, you know what we do? This is, these are the action steps we talked about. Very simple, at the end of last week's message, we listen, we learn, we lean in, and we love one another, right? And when we choose to carry somebody, the burden of what divides us diminishes. And what unites us begins to surface. We fear less, we understand more and the more that we're going to discover. This is how the church began. And this is how the world changed. So if you've been with us, we're in part, you haven't been with us, we're in, in part three of this series. One another, choosing to love unconditionally in a politically world. This is the last morning of the series. And you guys are not going to want to miss next week. Um, we've got a special guest, Bill Boylan, who's just going to rock your world. So um, I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. But um, so this is our last morning on this this morning. And we've said this throughout the series, that the church should be the safest place in the world to talk about anything, right? And the church certainly should be the safest place to talk about politics. We rarely do because, well, it can get uncomfortable. Uh, but some of you, maybe you grew up in churches where you talked politics all the time. But isn't it true, if you grew up in a church that talked about it all the time, you only talked about it from one side of the discussion. And, and so churches get known for being super left, We've got a lot of those. We've got churches being known for super right or more Republican or more Democrat. But in this season, what's going on in our nation with what's going on in our lives, we decided that this discussion was so prudent. And, and we've said that the, the issue that Christians need to wrestle to the ground is not which party to be a part of. The issue that every single Jesus follower has to wrestle to the ground is this. Are we willing to put our faith filter ahead of our political filter? And, and this is very difficult to do. It's so difficult to do that most of us think we've already done it. We don't even see that there's something that needs to be done. And, and many of us aren't, aren't willing. And, and some of you, I'm not even sure we can. But if you're a Jesus follower, we should be compelled to put our faith filter ahead of your political filter. To be a Christ follower first and a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Independent second. And, and what I hope to convince us of today is this, that when we do, things change in culture and society. We've seen it in the stories that we've shared every single week. And in fact, here's what happens. We do the world a huge disfavor when we wrap our political ideologies with the teachings of Jesus. And everybody tries to do this. It's a, it's a common thing. Now, you, you, we talked about it last week. We'll... we'll Every, each side will try to use scripture. They'll, tr they'll quote Jesus. They'll quote, you know, people from the scriptures. If you don't hear anything else I, I say this morning, hear this. Jesus did not come to be a footnote to a political platform. He didn't. He did not come to support an existing structure. In fact, we were, again, we we're talking about this last week. He didn't come to take sides. He came to take what? Over. 
He came to take over. Thank you. That's right. We were quoting Pastor Tony Evans. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. He came to replace everything that was in place. Jesus is the king who came to reverse the order of things. He comes and says, we got a new kingdom that's coming. And we got a new command and a new covenant that we're going to live under. And, and when we edit and when we parse and when we filter Jesus to fit a party platform, we rob the world, not just our communities and our nation, we rob the world. Listen, we rob the world of the message that changed the world. So we cannot be first and foremost party people. And I'm not talking about freshman year of college party people. I'm talking about, you know, we must be kingdom people. We must be kingdom people who are willing to influence the culture around us when forced to choose. Come on, let's get real. <laughs> when forced to choose between two imperfect candidates and two imperfect platforms and imperfect planks within the platforms, we have to call out those imperfections and not for our sake and not even for our party's sake, but for the world's sake. Now, this is a big deal. This is a, so much a big deal that early Christians lost their lives over this. And I wanna talk about this a little bit this morning on our last time um, having this conversation. Early Christians began to reshape the world because of this. Now, they were in a divided world. They refused unconditional lo loyalty to the emperors, even, even the good ones. And in, and in doing so, they moved the ethical and the moral needle of an empire. And do you know how they did it? You know how they did it? They did it through, I wanna, I wanna use this word this morning, culturally disruptive unity. Culturally disruptive unity in a world that honored and was organized around citizenship and wealth and power, where, where people purchased their way up the ladder and purchased their way to social standing, the ecclesia of Jesus, the gathering of Jesus' followers, the, the assembly, the congregation of the saints, you guys that are in the house this morning, his followers would, they, they, later they would be called the church. They stood in direct opposition to all of that. And it was disturbing. It was disturbing to the culture. It was unsettling. It was actually dangerous to the empire. This is why the empire decided to strike back. Just, just kidding. Um, <laughs> this is why the empire decided to impose sanctions on Christians. And they forced Christians to declare that Caesar was Lord. And they realized that this was a threat to the empire. And here's why. There's no way to exaggerate this this morning, but I'm going to try to paint the picture. And I want you to kind of follow along as we do this. There's no way to, to describe it adequately. And there's really no way to kind of elicit in us um, the emotion that those in the first century and the second century Christians felt. But, this, but let's start with this. Talking about the church, talking about the ecclesia. Classes of people whose circles rarely overlapped, they came together and voluntarily and regularly to worship the crucified God. Now that's talking about the church. I'm talking about, you know, this is, this is Paul in Ephesians where he talks about, remember that the dividing wall he talks about in Ephesians? This is the dividing wall that Jesus come to open the door. And those two parties that were like so disparate and separate and did not want to have anything to do with each other. He said, I've come to tear that wall down. I'm opening the door right now. And so this is what we're talking about. But this is the church we're talking about here. Classes of people whose circles rarely overlapped, coming together voluntarily and regularly to worship the crucified God. And, and this was baffling to the people of the empire. And why did people who never had anything to do with each other, um, the social structure was so separate 
even within you know, the, the early church of Jesus, it was so separated. How did they overcome social norms and why did they overcome the prejudices and their racism and why did they overcome their class separation and their class distinctions? Why, why would they come together to worship the crucified God? And the empire didn't understand this because, but here's the thing. The reason they did is because the message of Jesus was so clear. He said, I've come to establish a new kingdom and everyone is invited to participate in this disruptive kingdom. Everybody. So we can't imagine how countercultural and how disturbing and how dangerous the Apostle Paul's words are that we're about to read. We're in the culture. Now we read them and we're about to read them in just a second. We read them and we think, oh yeah, whatever. You know, this is because, because this stuff to us now is self-evident. And we talked about this last week. What is self-evident to us? It's just obvious. And it was not self-evident in the first and second century. But because of the message of Jesus and the power of the church through Jesus and the power of the cross, what was disgusting to us has become self-evident to us because of the church, because of Christianity. And so the apostle Paul writes these words and we read right over them sometime like, well, well, well of course. But these words were like showstoppers. <laughs> when he said this, people were like losing their food. Like they, they, they were, their jaws were dropping. And, and, and so this, this had them all kind of catching their breath when he was saying these statements. They're like, what? Right? So this is what he says. He starts off by saying, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Okay, let's talk about two absolutely polar parties, okay? There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Wait, 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 wait. The people in the audience know that's not how it works. You know, we're singing this song, we've got Yahweh. Yes, we do. We've got Yahweh. How about you? No, it's just us. We have to share now. We have to just, we have to worship the same God. Oh, I've got to invite the Gentiles into my home. You are, and, and I, I have to get Gentile cooties, <laughs> right? Wait, I got to do stuff with the Jews. The Jews have ignored us and treated us less than their whole lives. They've called us names. We have nothing in common. They won't let us date their daughters. Paul says, those days are over. He, he's speaking to this crowd and they're like, no, 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 no. This can't possibly be over. They eat weird stuff and they wear weird things, <laughs> right? And Paul says, those days are over. There's a new kid in town and there's a new kingdom. And what has been such a source of conflict and a source of tension, that's all going away because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all find salvation the same way. And what used to divide you has the potential now to unite you. There is no Jew and there is no Gentile. Bomb dropped, okay? First phrase. This next one again, we're like, yeah, of course. But I'm telling you, this was so disruptive to the economy, it was disruptive to everything they knew. It was anything but self-evident. He says, there is neither slave nor free. We had this conversation a little bit before too. In this brand new upside, upside down kingdom, there is neither slave nor free. So the slaves are going, you're telling me that God views me the same, with the same dignity and the same esteem that he views my master? Or you're telling me that God sees my slaves the same way that he sees me? 
I mean, everybody knows that some people are born to rule and some people are born to be ruled over. I mean, this is just common sense. That's what it was to them. It was just obvious. It was self-evident. Some people are born to be ruled. Some people are born to be ruled over. I've heard and lived this my entire life. And now you're saying that there's this new system where slaves and free men and masters and the rich and the poor and the citizens and non-citizens, they all come together. And when they're together in this context, this ecclesia, this church, we're equal? (laughs) What kind of kingdom is this? It was so disruptive when Paul said this, but seeds of revolution had been sown with the words of Jesus and the apostle Paul. Then he picks up the pace a little bit. Some of the guys are are starting to get worried now because he says, there is there, nor is there male or female. Now here's something that we, we can't even begin to get our minds around. Slavery in the ancient world wasn't like slavery when we think about slavery in the United States. Slavery here was driven by racism, by color of skin. In the ancient world, imagine everybody was a potential slave. So, you know, to somebody, you, you, you missed your house payment, they come for your house and your daughter. And you miss your horse payment and they come for your horse and your son. And so everybody, just about everybody, is somebody's potential slave. And in a culture where just about everybody is somebody's potential slave, the dignity of women just drops off the table to a degree that we can't even begin to imagine. Women had no dignity and no standing in a culture that was driven by slave trading, that everybody could possibly be somebody else's property. And the dignity of women, there was virtually none. Except there was a few pockets uh, where there was wealth and if you were related to the right people. Otherwise, nothing. But Paul comes along and he says, well, let me just tell you something. In this new kingdom with this new value system, that this new king, men and women have the same dignity and the same standing. And of course, the men are hearing this and they're going, well, if the women find out about this, uh, right? But later, Peter, in his letter to the church in Colossae, that we call the book of Colossians, this is what he says. This is amazing. He's talking to men. And this is what he says. Hey, men, you need to be careful how you treat your wives. They are joint heirs with you in the kingdom. They are joint with you in terms of what's to come. You have the same master and you are accountable to your heavenly father and how you treat your heavenly father's daughter. She might be your wife, but he, or, or but she is his daughter. <laughs> and suddenly the dignity of women just kind of skyrocketed in this revolutionary way. What Jesus did for the status of women and the seed that he sowed in terms of the status of women, it's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And it's common sense to us, but it was not common sense to the first, second, third, and even the centuries that followed. And so he says, yeah, this is how he ends his little speech here. You are all one in Christ Jesus. <laughs> So that, you know, they're out in the audience saying, wait, I'm, I'm one with women and women are one with slaves and slaves are one with masters. Yeah, it's a new way of thinking. One, no distinction, equal value, equal dignity there. That, that was so disruptive, so disruptive. And, and the thing is, it caught on. And, and Jesus predicted that it would. Looking into the future, this is, he made this statement. It's so powerful. This is what he says in Luke 16. The law and the prophets, talking about the, the entire, what we would call the Old Testament. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. But after John the Baptist, there's a new king that stepped onto planet Earth and everything began to change. So since John the Baptist, since that time, the good news of a brand new kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. 
And look at this, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Everyone, their eyes are being opened. It's talking about the kingdom, the empire. They're beginning to recognize the world in a different way. They're beginning to see themselves in a different way. They're beginning to see other people in a different way. This isn't just a tweak, this is a wholesale change. This is a new paradigm. And this is the upside down kingdom of God. And Jesus has introduced it into the world and we have been invited to participate in it. And more importantly, we are stewards of God's kingdom, right? We're stewards in our communities and our nation and the world. And this is why it would be so foolish, so foolish for any church or any group of churches or the church in general to ever be divided over political issues or political party. That's exactly what was happening in this story here. There were two very separate parties. And, and, and he says, I'm bringing you together. Those parties will one day be over. A Jesus kingdom will, will last and he will still be king. And so work with me. 45 years after the Apostle Paul is executed, and Peter's also been executed, in Nero's Rome, 45 years go by. And when Apostle Paul dies and Peter dies, it's like, oh no, these are our two superheroes of the faith. I mean, these guys were you know, considered heroes in their community and they're dead. So the question is being asked then, does that mean that Rome won? Does that mean that the temple won? No. Christianity just begins to just spread like wildfire, just spreading like crazy. So 45 years after Apostle Paul is executed in Nero's Rome, there's this guy, his name is Pliny the Younger. He's the governor of an area or region that was in our modern day Turkey. And he realizes that as a governor, it's his responsibility to put down the growth of the church. The church is, is spreading like crazy. And the emperor, he sent out an edict that says, we have to stop the spread of Christianity because the gods, little g, are angry. And so it wasn't too long after this that the edges of the Roman Empire, they're beginning to fray. And so the Romans are trying to figure out what's wrong. And what's wrong is, is when their little g gods are angry, what would make the gods angry? The gods aren't being sacrificed to the way they, they used to be. And so who's the culprit behind the gods not being sacrificed to? It must be those Christians. They're changing things. And so there's a word that goes out to round up and arrest those that are believers. You were to force them to sacrifice to the emperor. And, and they don't have to necessarily quit believing one thing, but they've at least got to acknowledge that the emperor is Lord or the emperor is, is where their ultimate allegiance is. And so Pliny the Younger, a governor in this, in this uh, whole system, he says, hey, you know, I've got to do what the emperor says, but I'm not even sure why we're doing this. I mean, I haven't even noticed a disturbance in the community because of these believers. So this is what he does. He writes a letter to an emperor whose name was Trahan, asking the question, what should I do with these Christians once I round them up? And before he sent the letter, he did a little investigating because he wanted, you know, to have the full picture. He decided that he needed to educate himself on what made these Christians so dangerous. And so he incorporated his findings in this letter. And this is a letter that we can actually read. Um, we have copies of it today. It survived antiquity. And here's what Pliny the Younger discovered about the Christian community 45 years after the Apostle Paul was executed by Rome. He included this in this letter. He said, here's what I found. The sum and substance of their fault, because clearly they're at fault, otherwise we wouldn't be rounding them up, right? The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day of the week before dawn. So 
He sends out his spies. I, you know, I actually arrested a few Christians. I, you know, I beat them up a little bit. Um, I roughed them up a little bit to find out what was going on. Uh, what do you believe? What are you up to? You know, why, why are you a threat to the empire? And one thing that I discovered is that they meet together on a certain day of the week before dawn. They would meet on a Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But Sunday is a work day in this culture. There's no weekend. Sunday is a work day. So they would meet before dawn, before work to celebrate and worship together. Now, imagine with me if we moved our church services to Monday morning at 5.30 a.m. and we'd worship for an hour together. How many of you would show, you don't need to raise your hands. Um, (laughs) These are our people. This is the church. This is how committed they were. They were showing up at Monday morning, 5.30 in the morning, and they were worshiping. And this is how they moved and changed the world. This is how they were. And when they would get together early in the morning before dawn, he's finding this out. What they would do is they would sing. Whoa, how is the empire going to survive with singing? Oh, no, (laughs) right? This is such a threat. He said they sing a responsive hymn, and they sing to Christ as if he's some kind of, you know, God. They think he's a God, is what he says. So next time that we're singing and you don't like the song, or next time we're singing and you don't like to sing, and I want you to just think about this. Our people 2,000 years ago, the people that took this to the next generation, after the apostle Paul and Peter, they would gather and they would sing. And, and, and the reason they would sing is because most people at this time in this culture, they couldn't read. And not only could they not read, they had nothing to read because there's no Bible. There's, they hadn't even pieced all those pieces together yet. I mean, they may have had a fragment of the gospel. They may have a fragment of, you know, one of Paul's or, or Peter's letters. But in many of the, these communities, even if they had something like that, nobody could read them. And so they learned their theology uh, through chants and through poems and mostly through singing songs. And they would sing these hymns and they would sing them loud. And, and, and so this was their way, as he wrote, worshiping Christ as if he were a God. And here's the other thing that we found out, emperor, while they were gathered together, they would bind themselves by oath. Aha, this is where it's gonna get dangerous, right? What are they binding themselves with an oath to? This must be, you know, this, this oath must have something to do with undermining the kingdom. Um, this oath must have something to do with creating some kind of insurrection. This oath, maybe there's an oath that's gonna create some kind of slave revolt. I mean, we don't know, but what's, what's this dangerous oath that they're gonna take? Here's, here's the oath. Not to commit some crime. <laughs> what, they were, what, they, what were they taking the oath for? Here's what they vowed together to do instead. Not to commit to some crime, but not to commit fraud. They were, gonna, they were not going to steal from people or charge people too much or treat people dishonestly when it came to finances or trading. They promised each other that they would not defraud people. And they promised that they wouldn't steal from anybody. And they promised out loud to each other when they were gathered that they wouldn't commit adultery or falsify their trust, which basically just means, you know, to not follow through on a promise. So this, (laughs) Pliny's looking at this. This sounds dangerous. I mean, we can't have people like this in our culture, in our towns, in our villages, right? He's looking at this. Now, I, I think really his reaction when Pliny the Younger is looking at this and he discovers all this, he realizes, no wonder I haven't heard about them. These are some of the finest people in our kingdom, right? And, and I'm supposed to arrest them? And, and so let me tell you what was so amazing about this. Again, this is kind of a, you know, self-evident to us. It's kind of like, a, well, we understand this, but this is it's kind of just common sense. But in the pagan religions, there was no morality 
or ethics related to the pagan worship. There was civil law just to kind of keep things in line. Uh, But when it came to the gods, the gods didn't care how you treated other people. They didn't care at all. The gods didn't care how you treated your wife or how you treated your children. The gods just didn't care. They wanted their blood sacrifices. That's what was important to the little G gods. They wanted their grain offerings. You you were just to try to bribe the gods. And, and, And suddenly... Here's, here's what the world, the culture sees. They see this cult and they, they feel that somehow in the worship of their God, there's this moral component that they just don't understand. There's this ethical component as if they feel accountable to a living God, to feel accountable to God for how they treat each other. And they feel accountable to God for how they treat people in the community. Now, um, just imagine, imagine what would happen in our community in our country, if every week Christians gathered and they made an oath to each other out loud, I will not defraud anybody financially. This week, I'm not going to steal anything, any ideas or any credit. This week, I will be faithful once and always to my wife. This week, to my husband. This week, I'm not going to let anybody down. I'm going to follow through on what I promised. Imagine such a world, okay? Now, in a pagan world, that was super amazingly countercultural. So he says, the other part of the oath is this, nor to refuse to return a trust. If somebody's counting on me, they can count on me when called upon to do so. And plenty of the younger is like, that's it? That's all you got? So all we could find out, we tortured a few Christians and we sent out people to be amongst them and this is all we got. So this is the group that is angering the gods. This is who we're going after, the group that's undermining the empire. This is the group that we're to round up and eliminate. See, this, this didn't make any sense to him. This, but this was, you know, who it didn't make sense to even more? The culture at large. This is so countercultural. In a culture that worshiped strength, in a culture that worshiped warfare, in a culture that worshiped conquest and victory and climbing up the ladder to be on top and be above everybody else, the ruling class of the day found this pathetic and, and I mean, even pitiful. I mean, this is ridiculous. They worship a crucified rabbi, a crucified teacher, a dead teacher, what is with this? And from their perspective, this whole thing, the whole thing looking at it, this was just kind of weird and appalling. That was their first, you know, when they had the first glimpse of of what was happening, it was just like, what in the world? But here's the thing, for many, many people, as this kind of started to, to take place in the culture, they found the upside down kingdom of Jesus appealing. Once I started figuring out what these guys were really about and what they were really doing and they were loving each other despite all of their differences, it was kind of appealing. We don't have that in our community. It was appealing. Christians refused to abandon the sick because they no longer fear death. (laughs) And we talked about this, this last week. Christians would not abandon babies to exposure or infanticide because everybody's made in the image of God. And Christians wouldn't let children out to die uh, that they don't think that they could even afford to raise. They, they, they would go and grab them because they're made in the image. We talked about this. They would go out to the edge of the forest and the edge of the villages where babies were often left by people in the culture. And they would bring these babies in and raise them as their own, even when they hardly had enough food for themselves. And the, the culture's looking at this and they're saying, who are these people? You know, they, they extended dignity to the slaves and to their servants and the people that aren't in their class. They're, they're raising up their women. What is going on? Who are these people? Jordan B. Peterson, he sums it up perfectly. This is what he says. Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. 
This is the part that we cannot even begin to get our minds around. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul. This was unheard of. It really was. Placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. The implicit, this is so powerful, the implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. The kingdom of God, as described by Jesus, struck the ancients as first appalling, eventually appealing to many, and in time, what happened is it became contagious. It became contagious, and it swept the empire. That was a story. Against all odds, a Nazarene cult, which is what they were called, many times you'll read about it in the book of Acts, referred to as a Nazarene sect. They're, they're following a dead Nazarene, this Nazarene sect who worshiped this crucified rabbi, their dead teacher with no territory, no military, no authority, no political power, no political standing, whose message was built around what the culture considered these pathetic ideas of loving your enemy and loving one another. It not only survived and thrived, but it shaped Western civilization. And we, every single Jesus follower here, and listening or watching online is a part of that movement. And we dare not be divided over party lines, knowing that one day those parties are going to be over. And if those who came before us who were so different from each other, I mean, talk about, you know, they, they wouldn't even be in the same tide of town. I'm, I've, been, I've been talking about different. <laughs> I'm talking about culturally divided. They were so, if, if those who came before us that lived in a world that we can't even begin to imagine, if somehow they were able to find common ground with each other at the foot of the cross, we have no excuse. Their culturally disruptive unity, what it did is it shocked the world. And eventually their message would change the world. So come on, let's do that. Let's do that. Because we know this. We, we might as we might as well be super honest for just a minute. We've been doing it the whole series, right? We run the risk of being divided over some very important issues. That's just the fact. We do. We, we run the risk of being divided over some very, very important issues that you are passionate about, that I'm passionate about. I mean, passionate about. But let's be honest. It may be impossible for you and I to understand how a Jesus follower could possibly have a different view on a specific issue than you have. You know, well, I can't even imagine. You call yourself a Christian and you're still for this. You call yourself a Christian and you're still against this. You call yourself a Christian. I just don't understand. And you may never ever understand why other believers don't see political issues and social issues the way that you do. You may never understand how they can be for what you're against and against what you're for. So here's what it comes down to. When you go and vote, when we go and vote, and I hope you do, when we need to vote, the law of Christ informed conscience. What's the law of Christ? That we love one another as he loved us. And as we do that, absolutely we need to do that. When you go to vote, don't go vote based on trying to bunch a bunch of people happy. You vote your conscience as directed by Holy Spirit. Hello, he speaks to us, right? 
I hope we pray. I hope we get on our knees and seek his face. But in the meantime, let's do what the early church did and let's carry each other's burdens, amen? Because when you help me carry my burden, you gain an understanding about who I am and where I sit and consequently where I stand. And when you help me carry my burden, I get a better understanding of where you sit and consequently where you stand. And when we've got each other's back, I, what happens is there's something that happens that can't happen in any other way. And we may never agree politically, but we can love unconditionally because we'll gain a better understanding of each other. And if we never understand each other completely, even if we never get there, if we never agree, if we, if, if we carry one another's burdens, you know what we do? This is the last part of that verse. We do the most important thing. We fulfill the law of Christ to love one another as he loved us. To say it a different way, you don't have to understand me or agree with me to love me. And I do not have to agree with you to love you. We can disagree politically, but we can love unconditionally. While we pray, the prayer that Jesus prayed, remember this, this is the prayer, they call it the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed right before his crucifixion. He prayed a prayer request for us to the heavenly father. And he said, Father God, the last thing I wanna ask you to do, because I know that there's gonna be division in the church, would you make them one as we are one? Because I know that if we can stand together, not necessarily agreeing on anything, but if we can stand together and love each other, that is gonna show a divided world what love really is. That was his prayer. So if we can do that, let's not miss the opportunity of a lifetime, the invitation to the follow the king that turned everything upside down and you know, reversed the order of things. Let's do this. Let's stand as we close. So let's listen to each other. Let's learn from each other. Let's love each other. And together we will make our city better, and we will make our neighborhoods better, and we can make this nation better. We can make the world better. And that's not just hyperbole, because once upon a time, a handful, a handful of Jesus followers multiplied to the point where the empire finally threw up their hands and embraced the Jesus of Nazareth. And a whole nation, a whole empire was turned around. And if we get this right, perhaps we will leave our nation a little less divided. And uh, after all, Jesus prayed that prayer for us. He was praying it for us, the church. So Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to love each other. God, I, I, we just love our community and we want them to know the love of Jesus. And so God, we pray, Holy Spirit, Lord, bring us to our knees. We love our nation. We wanna see the, a nation turn to you. God, help us as believers to love one another first so that they will know what love is true love is to look like. Bind us together. Your holy name we pray. Amen. Pastor Derek, you can be seated. Actually, if you don't mind, go ahead and stay standing. Okay. <laughs> We're doing things a little bit differently today. Um, you know, normally I'd get up and, and we would do a, a salvation type uh, leading prayer thing, but I feel like God's leading us uh, somewhere different today. 
Um, the last three weeks have been a call from Holy Spirit for us to live differently, to treat each other differently, to uh, have discussions over things that we disagree about. And so I think that um, it would be appropriate for us to, to end this series, this call um, of God for us to live differently. Let, let's end that with a response, okay? So a rich guy came up to Jesus, said, Jesus, how can I put the kingdom first? How can I put the kingdom of God first? Jesus said, well, there's two things you have to do. You have to love God with everything you've got. And you have to love your neighbor. And Jesus finished by saying, the law and the prophets are all based on these two commandments. Everything in Judaism is based on loving God and loving your neighbor. But why? What's the practical application of that? I think we, we, we tend to just kind of let that go as, as this, um, well, yeah, that's the good holy thing that we all can't do because we're human, right? So we let it go. But if we read in Ecclesiastes chapter four, I observed yet another example of something meaningless. For those of you that don't know, Ecclesiastes is one of the um, wisdom books teaching us how to live life better. The writer says, I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? What am I giving up so much pleasure? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? Is it all so me- <laughs> it's all so meaningless and depressing. Basically, he's saying a life alone isn't a full life. He continues in uh, verse nine. Two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. And if you've been to a wedding any time in the last forever, we talk about that in a lot of weddings, how, how one cord is the husband and one cord is the wife and the third cord is God. And when you, when you twist those together, that marriage can't be broken. Well, I, my argument today, what I would bring to you today is that I'm a strand and you're a strand and God's a strand. And I realize that I need you and we need God if we're gonna get through this. If we're gonna live the life that he's calling us to, we need each other. That doesn't mean that we always agree, but we need each other. So as a response to what God's been calling us, I'm I'm gonna pray and then Pastor Sean's gonna lead us in a song. And I I would encourage you to um, just respond to Holy Spirit's call this morning in, in whatever way suits you, okay? Jesus, please bind us together in your love. Like a cord with three strands that cannot easily be broken, we recognize our need for you and our need for one another in our lives. God, help us to see the value in our brothers and sisters, even when we don't agree. Jesus, help us to love one another as you have loved us. Amen. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot together, Lord. Bind us together, 
seal this time in this series. Lord, we say the answer is not any, in any kind of political, worldly um, party, but it is in your party. It's that we jump into that party wholeheartedly. And Lord, help us bind us together. Lord, there's a miracle that happens in marriage when you uh, take two and you make them one. Lord, I believe you can do that with the church. And it's not to, to form some kind of new political party or anything like that. Um, but Lord, it's to pray for those who are in leadership in our country and to love them and to love our country and to love them by loving each other. That's how we show them who you are. So God, we thank you for your calling and your purpose for us. Bind us together. Your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.